Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we have eight questions all sorts of different topics, a lot about eating disorders, but the first one is about trauma. So let's jump right in. Now, this question says, Katie, I've been in therapy for three years now to help me work through some childhood sexual abuse and my insane workload from university. I'll be graduating in a month, thankfully. Yay, congratulations. I didn't know anything like that had happened to me until we went into lockdown back in 2020 in New Zealand. All of a sudden I had this memory and I was so confused and shocked. I've had at least two other separate memories come back since then, and I'm having a hard time um, coming to terms with the fact that I may not know everything that went on. I was five at the time and deeply repressed everything that happened, which is understandable. We do what we must to survive. Yeah, I know. And also at five, you're barely out of the age where we're able to easily form long-term memory. We can have some memories of, you know, childhood before age five, but it's very rare. Um, and five is around the age when we're able to form those long-term memories. So you're kind of at that cusp kind of. Um, okay. Um, but I'm just wondering if you have any advice on how I can accept or come to terms with the fact that I may not ever remember all of the details or events. I feel really anxious about the thought of more memories coming up to upset me whenever they feel like it. I've been diagnosed with PTSD, if that helps. P.S. Thanks for all you do. Loved your book, Traumatized. Oh, I'm so glad. I hope it was helpful. Now, there's a lot and there's a comment below this we'll get into in a second, but there's a lot to to go through here, a lot of thoughts that I have. And the first is, how do we, well, a lot of people are going to have questions. How do we know that the memories that all of a sudden pop up, these, you know, quote unquote, repressed memories, how do we trust them or can we trust them? And I mentioned this time and time again, there's even a study mentioned in Body Keeps the Score that also reiterates this, but essentially through research and following people for years, we do know that repressed memories are ones that you can trust. Now, I know that doesn't take away from the fact that shame is a huge component of PTSD. So we can think, oh, I must have done something, you know, and this it didn't really happen. I'm making this up. I'm making this worse, right? The guilt, the shame, the, the self-blame that we put on ourselves when we struggle with trauma that can still be there. But I just want you to like check your facts and tell yourself, hey, they've done a lot of research. They followed hundreds and thousands of people across years and had them retell similar events. And it turns out we can trust them. Not only have they done those studies to prove that 
because it was multiple people involved in it and the people remembered it very similarly. Also, they had people who had, um, I don't know if it was assaulted or I think it was childhood sexual abuse, but maybe it was assault. And they, throughout a year, they followed all the kids who'd reported this. And then they checked in five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, and their stories never changed. Um, And they also followed a group of people that all of a sudden remembered things. There was like, I think 157 people in that study. It was women. And they'd come out about being abused in their childhood and they were like in their 20s at the time and they followed them into their 40s and 50s and that it didn't change so i know it sounds crazy to be like but those are other people yes but we can trust our trauma memories and we can also trust the repressed memories when they come back as long as they're not like a therapist isn't guiding you and telling you what you remember you know what i mean okay so that's the first thing i want to just address the second is Accepting or coming to terms with the fact that you may never remember the details. I I feel like a lot of trauma, and I don't know if this is going to help, but we'll approach this from a few different angles. A lot of trauma processing or working through our PTSD is actually about how it affects us. So it doesn't really matter when it comes to recovery or being able to move past our trauma. It doesn't really matter if we remember everything. It's more about how it's affecting us and working on that. Does that make sense? I know we put a lot of emphasis on like remembering all the details and talking them through until there's no emotional charge. And yes, that's helpful. And we should do that for the memories we have, but we also can process and work through what's coming up in our bodies and in our life so that we feel better and we can you know, live a full, fulfilling, healthy life free from flashbacks and things like that. Even if we have no memory of why, you know, what happened or why that's what's coming up. So I want you to know that there's recovery any which way. It doesn't just look and feel one kind of way. Now coming to terms with it, it's going to take time. And I wish there was an easy answer for this, but everyone's going to be different because I would be more curious about what comes up for you when you think about this, when you think about the fact that you have these bits and pieces, or maybe you only remember, you know, this chunk from this time. I'd want to know what you think about that, what judgments, what, you know, unhealthy or unhelpful thoughts come up. I want you to, you know, pay attention to that and tell your therapist, because I think that's going to be a huge part of it for you is that process. And I think my guess would be, my hypothesis would be that some of it just has to do with grief. And I know that sucks and you know, grief is already heavy enough when we think of it in the traditional sense of like losing someone, but we have to grieve all the time. We have to grieve the loss of the life we thought we would have. Like relationships can end and we grieve what we thought that could be. Um, I have friends who struggle to get pregnant and they have to grieve the loss of the life as a parent they thought they're going to have, right? And in relation to this question, we might have to grieve the thought that we felt like once once we got into therapy to work on this, that we would be able to recall it all and we could remember everything and we can't now. And we have to grieve that. And I know people can be like, well, grief sounds very intense, Katie, for that. I don't think so, because grief is really what what's lost in anything can be lost for us, right? And right now it's it's memories that are lost. And give yourself an opportunity to be angry about it, to be sad about it, to maybe feel the weight of it. And what I'd encourage you to do to work through it is really continue to talk about that grief and that process and what comes up for you. No judgments. 
It's okay to be mad, sad, upset. It's okay to be glad sometimes. Glad I don't have those memories. I have some patients who felt that way. Also have some patients that feel like, I don't think I can process it through if I can't remember. And I want you to talk about that with your therapist because the truth is you can, like I just talked about, you know, work on what's happening in our bodies and how it's showing up for us. That's actually the only thing that's required when it comes to trauma processing. But why do we think the other way? You know, and it's okay to talk that through. And little by little, we can let go of of that, grieve that loss and move forward. But give yourself an opportunity to feel whatever comes up. And there's no judgments around it. There's no speed with which we need to move through it. Give yourself that time and patience, which I know is hard when we're survivors of trauma, but just know that it can and will get better. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that said, I'm not sure if this question is related. So please ignore if it's too far off, but could you tell me something about how to find out if memories are real? After a non-visual flashback, I had recurring visual sequences, typically in the evening or at night, which would indicate childhood sexual abuse. However, I'm unsure if these are real memories. These consequences were in third person, or these sequences, sorry. These sequences were in third person. I could not recognize faces and my body reacted with sexual arousal in the now, although I was emotionally uninvolved. I'm very unsettled as I've had an intrusive, sexually violent fantasies for a while now, whereas these were somehow different and my body reacted rather aversely. I can't describe it properly, unfortunately, but I'm now afraid that my brain is spinning something together. I started therapy a year and a half ago, and as as I had the inner feeling for a longer time that I may have been sexually abused as a child, even though when we uh, we just rarely talked about possible childhood sexual abuse in therapy. I hope this wasn't too explicit. No, not at all. But I'm now currently despairing as I cannot assess how true these sequences were. How can I find out if I'm imagining the whole thing as I can't talk to other people for validation? Not sure if this is important, but I was able to put these sequences aside after two and a half weeks using um, imaginatory techniques such as imaginatory safe and imaginatory guard. Okay. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a great question. And the truth is that talking it through with our therapist and kind of fact checking ourselves along the way. Um, a trauma timeline could help if you think you could kind of piece one of those together, because it sounds like you started out having non-visual flashbacks. So it would be like in your body, right? We're not really seeing anything. Maybe we're feeling something or emotions that come up. We can have emotional flashbacks, right? So body memories, emotional flashbacks, where did those come from? And what do they pertain to? Do we have any idea? It's okay to just be curious about this. We don't have to have answers. We don't have to decide. I know it can feel like we have to decide, but this came out of nowhere. 
we can go down the avenue. It's okay to question and go down the avenue of being a detective about, does this relate to anything in my life? The things that I'm feeling, like you said, you don't know the people. Could we look through family photos and, you know, see if anything comes up? Do we have old family videos? Are there any ways for us to check our facts if we can't ask someone? Let's go down that road. Then next, let's go down the road of the fact that we've also had these intrusive, sexually violent fantasies for a long time. Does this connect with that? You're saying already to me that they're very different, but let's explore that and maybe note all the differences so that we can slowly prove to ourselves that they're not the same, or maybe they are. Whatever we find out is fine. There's no judgment. There's no expectation, no assumptions. We're just going to be curious, not judgmental about our experience. And I think it's important you do this with your therapist and talk it through and kind of slowly tease it out because then and only then are you going to be, be able to, number one, convince yourself that that's the truth, but number two, also be able to like put it aside and acknowledge that it is this or it is that and feel like you can move on. Um, with the process, right? And it's going to unfortunately take time because these memories can be convoluted, right? They can be complicated where you don't have a visual, but you had bodily, you know, reactions and arousals. Where'd that come from? Has that ever happened before? We need to feel free to be a detective and, you know, be curious, not judgmental about our process. We can figure out what happened and take your time. Like I said, there's no rush with this. It's actually better that we we give ourselves the space to kind of consider and go down these paths of questioning, and then we'll be able to find out the answers. Okay. Um, but again, if you can't ask someone for validation, you can't reach out to a family member or a friend to see if that was true or if we ever knew someone who wore this shirt because that's all we remember or something like that. We can go through photos, videos, and things like that. That could be a resource as well. And if you don't even have access to those things, sometimes social media can be helpful. People post old photos from the family all the time. So we could post, you know, we could check in old posts from other family members and see if they're, you know, photos, videos, things like that. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, I was just wondering as a therapist, what approaches you would use when working with clients who feel like they are behind in life due to social pressures? I ask this as I sometimes feel like I'm somewhat behind compared to people my age in relation to relationships, having children, having a career, having my own house. How would you manage this in session with so many expectations surrounding it? And do you personally feel the pressure is bigger on females than males? This is a great question. And I wouldn't say that there's a specific type of therapy for this. I, I lean towards kind of the cognitive behavioral or CBT type therapy because it has to do with our thoughts and our beliefs about things due to societal pressures, right? We, we're shit talking ourselves and telling ourselves there's a timeline and we're wondering why we're not abiding by it, right? And what's wrong with me? We can have shame thoughts. What's wrong with me? Why Why don't I have a relationship or children or a career path or own a home or whatever random, you know, kind of goals we're, we think we're supposed to have, I guess, in life at a certain time. But when it works with, um, when I work with clients about this, my first movement is to talk to them about where they think they should be. I let them live in the shoulds for a little bit before I shut it down. Because you guys know, it, shoulding, <laughs> the perfect statement is you sh don't should all over it, right? Don't should on your life. Because shoulda, coulda, woulda only makes us think that we're not enough, not good enough. Things aren't going to work out for us. We're always less than, right? Or not doing things correctly. It's a very judgmental place to be that shoulda, coulda, woulda. 
or it's really remorseful and we can't go back in time and change things, right? So it's a very negative, not helpful place to be. But I'd let my patients live in it for a little while because I want to hear from them where they think they should be. And after we kind of go through that, and I take notes usually writing down like the the key points, like you, the person who asked this question, you know, relationships, having children, career, and having my own home, right? Those are those things right now for their age. So I'd let them tell me where they think they should be. And then I talk to them about, you know, where they are at. See if there are different measurements we can use. Are there things that you're really proud of? Like for instance, um, Sean and I are never going to have children. We don't want children, but people could think, oh, your life is unfulfilled. Or maybe I could feel pressure from other people in my family or friends saying like, when are you guys going to, you should have kids. You're going to be old and lonely or whatever judgments people have. If that's where this is coming from directly, if that societal pressure is direct, the thing that I always want to consider is what's their problem, right? Because if someone's coming at me saying that I should do something, that's a direct representation of where they're at in their life. And so I'll work with my patients to identify those situations where you can point out and be like, wow, they must not be happy in their own life. Or they must think, you know, that, that that's the only way to happiness. Like even some of my friends, um, I remember them really having a tough time having newborns and then saying to me that I should have kids. And I was like, why? Because misery loves company. And they're like, yes, I want to be able to commiserate with you about how terrible this is. And that had nothing to do with me having kids or not. You see what I'm saying? So I think in some ways when we're working through this, we have to be open to having a full view of it. We can get really focused on our own experience and what this says about us versus seeing it from other people's perspectives, meaning people coming in saying you should be here, you should be doing this. It really says more about them and their experience and where they think they should be or the reasons that they made choices, maybe that they didn't even feel like were a choice. Does that make sense? I find a lot of people go through life thinking, well, it's this age that I get married and whoever they're dating at that time, they're like, well, this must be who I get married to. And then we should have kids. And then I guess we should buy a house, even though I don't know if I want to live in this city, state, whatever. And sometimes we're just like on autopilot. And I would argue that that's not necessarily a better path, right? To each their own. And so I really explore this with my patients. I would want to know where they think they should be. I would explore all those avenues and the messages maybe they've received. And then in the most important part is asking them like where they want to be and trying to tease out the the truth, which can take time. And it can be hard for my patients to even admit that maybe they don't want this thing or they really do. So that's why I kind of lean towards that cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, because we're going to want to track those thoughts that we're having. And we're going to want to challenge them when they're not helpful. But we almost can't do that. I mean, we could work on making our thoughts less negative in the moment, but we almost can't even get into that until we first, like I said, figure out what it is maybe we do want ourselves, what societal pressures do we feel. And we're going to have to kind of tease that out so we can slowly learn what we want. Because we have this problem in our world as a whole, deciphering from what we might think is expected or what we shoulda, coulda, woulda done and what we actually want for ourselves. We have a tough time acknowledging that. Um, it's almost like I had this TikTok I did a long time ago about how a lot of people say, well, I don't have a choice. I'm stuck doing this, right? I don't have a choice at my job or where I live, or um, I'm, you know, I don't have a choice about whether or not I want to still stay in this place or be with this person. 
And the truth is, this is a hard truth. We always have a choice. Sometimes we just don't want to make the best choice for us because we could put other people first or we consider, and there's nothing wrong with considering other people. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying that when people say I don't have a choice, that the answer is you actually do. You just aren't strong enough or don't feel determined enough, or maybe don't actually want that choice. And so we, at that point have to decide, are we going to make this tough choice and do this thing for ourselves? Or are we going to give in to this because that's more important and do that? And then whatever decision we decide to make, whatever choice we make, then the part about accepting it and moving forward is going to be huge. So we don't just live in the space of like, I'm so unhappy. I don't even have a choice. I'm just stuck, right? The victim of your own life and your own decisions. That's not a very powerful place to be, right? And I'm kind of getting off topic. So let's just wrap this up here. When it comes to feeling like you're behind in life, the focus in therapy is really to acknowledge the the conversation you have with yourself about it. Tease out what pressures you feel. Where do you think you should be? Live in should land for a little while. And then take the most time figuring out what it is that's actually important to you. What do you want to do? Where do you want to be in life? Is it okay for you to be where you are? And kind of coming to terms with that. And that could mean we have to have some, we, it's a grieving process, right? We can have like the list of what we think we want or what we know we want and where we're at and what we have and grieving that difference for right now. Or it might be changing our thoughts into a less negative place. So we're not just shit talking ourselves as we navigate life at our own pace. Um, it might even mean that we alter the people we spend a lot of time with and find people who are at like on a path similar to ours so that we're not constantly told or reminded of, you know, you should be doing this. We might want to be in relationships with people who get it and are like, this is great. You're exploring your options or taking your time or because they're doing the same, you know, Um, that's really how I work on it. And then the final question on here is, do I personally feel the pressure is bigger on females rather than males? I don't think the pressure is bigger or stronger for either or. I think it depends on the issue. I find my female patients will feel way, way, way more pressure to have relationships and children. And men, and this is just like, I'm talking statistically speaking, I don't think it should be this way, but for a lot of people it is. I think males can feel like owning a home, having a steady career, making good money, um, being able to support a family is where they feel more pressure. And so I do think there's pressure on both sides. And and obviously it depends on the family too. Males could feel pressure to have children too. But I find in my practice, I've heard more from females saying I should be married and should have kids and men saying, you know, I should have a good career and be making good money. And that, I know that's a very traditional stance, but I think our society still has a lot of traditional values that it tries to, you know, pressure people into doing. And again, those are just all of my thoughts. And it's a very complex issue and each person's going to be different, but I hope that kind of gives you an idea of how I slowly navigate through it. Now let's move on to question number three. This question says, why do I crave negative attention? Great question. I've always had a fascination with and get excited about the idea of punishment or getting into trouble. I also tend to do things to draw negative attention in therapy. For example, the most recent round of therapy sessions I had, I would continue to self-injure because I like that my therapist seemed to worry about that. The more attention she paid to it, the more I wanted to do it. She once asked me why I stopped with only one cut and why not do more. So I took that as a challenge and made more cuts to show her that for next session. This is a a very common thing. And it's interesting. Negative attention is attention. 
We often think, why would I want people to think about me negatively? Or why would I want to get in trouble at school or at work or any situation like that? Why would I want to pick a fight with someone? Negative attention is still attention. And when we grow up in a household where maybe there's neglect or it usually falls into one of two buckets. It's either neglect, meaning a parent just completely ignores us, isn't there. Maybe they work too much or away from home a lot, or even when they are there, maybe they have their own mental illnesses and they're just not present for us. Or there's outward abuse, emotional, sexual, physical abuse. Either way, the only way we know or the the only thing we can try to do to get attention, right, is through negative avenues. Because if we're getting attention from a parent, it's in negative form or we're not getting any. And maybe the only reason they would ever, you know, care if neglect is there, we might think that we only got attention from them when we're hurting, right? Then when we actually need them, like we call in, we we call them from school and say that we're sick and our parent shows up to pick us up, right? And we can think, yes, they came, they love me. And it can be that affirmation, that attention that we've been so deeply craving. And so essentially, we're just looking for attention. And when parents don't give it to us regularly, and we aren't able to connect with them, see them, we don't feel taken care of, we don't feel seen, heard and understood, that follows us into adulthood. And we can do things to get more attention. And that's why it's almost like, it's, I don't even think it's necessarily negative or positive. I, I would guess that the person who asked this question doesn't know how else to do it. And this is what worked in the past. And we also, I feel like negative attention, the craving of it tends to come from more of that neglectful space because we want so deeply to be cared for. Like in this example, they're giving about like self-injury. We're wanting them to worry because no one ever worried. They were just not there, non-responsive or didn't seem to care. Right. And so we're wanting that. And so we're creating scenarios where we're essentially getting that inner child need met. Now, you all know that we can't get those things really met fully from outside places. We have to be able to give it to ourselves. And so my encouragement for anyone who feels this, like, oh, I just always crave negative tension. My encouragement for you would be to talk to your therapist and, and begin doing some inner child work, because this is where this comes from. This urge to get attention at any cost comes from a childhood wound, right? Someone wasn't there or someone was only there in a harmful way. And so we go into adulthood still trying to get that need met. And so we're going to need to work on that. And I have an inner child workshop that's accessible on my website. You can just go to my shop at katiemorton.com and purchase it. Um, that's a great place to start. There's also, like I said, doing the work with your therapist. There's tons of great work um, workbooks that I love. I have them in my Amazon shop. Just go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash katiemorton. And you can see the lists of all the stuff that I offer. Um or not that I offer, but ones that I recommend rather, books other people have created that I think are just beautiful and helpful. So those that's really where I would go with this. And that's that's where I think this is coming from. But if you think I'm off base, that's okay. Everybody's different. Feel free to ask a follow-up about this. But I think that's really where that craving of negative attention or attention in general comes from. Let's move on to question number four. This question reads, hi, Katie and community. How important do you think eye contact is in therapy? Are you getting the most out of therapy, even if you never establish eye contact over a longer period, um, over a longer period, like one or two years? 
The sensitive nature of therapy, of the therapy setting, makes me feel rather vulnerable and wanting to look somewhere else. Okay, now there are four or so comments below this, but let's dive into this part of the question first. How important is eye contact in therapy? I don't think it's the end-all be-all. It doesn't have to happen for therapy to be effective. It is, however, something that I would want to work on a patient with because, to this person's point, not being able to make eye contact says a lot about what's going on with us. There's a lot of reasons this can happen. Number one that comes to mind is my patients, my autistic patients, or who have ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder. Autistic patients struggle to make eye contact. I would want to know the reason behind this difficulty to make eye contact to ensure that they're properly diagnosed and people are getting the support that they need to find ways to work with, not against their brains, right? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That's part of it. Another part is that shame piece and potential trauma, right? That feeling of vulnerability that can be so uncomfortable that we can't. And I would want to find out if there are other places this came up for you, or if it's just around this specific topic, all of that. And I think working with you to figure out where this is coming from and, and if it's like a shame, embarrassment, or if it's like vulnerability, I have to look away. If it's a, a difficulty with acknowledging what is actually coming up for us, I, you know, I'd want to know more about the why behind it. And in therapy, the funny thing about being a therapist is we're trained to not ask the question, why? Why'd you do that? It feels very judgmental, right? It feels very finger pointy. Why'd you do that? And it seems judgmental. So we're taught to ask around that. So for instance, I'm curious about eye contact. It seems to be difficult for you. Is there a reason that you feel it's particularly tough today? Right? Seems much less direct, much less aggressive, much less finger pointy. And so... But that's how we would dig in because the truth about therapy is we're always looking for that why. That why is the root. And that's where this is coming from. And so I'm very curious about where this is coming from. Is it is it trauma-based? Is it shame-based? Which could be both. Is it the fact that sharing anything personal makes us want to jump inside ourselves? Where'd that come from? Have we never felt safe sharing things personal before? Right, you can see where this is going. Like, where's the pattern? Where did this start? Because things that show up for us in therapy, hardly ever... Like if I was a betting woman, I would always put my money on if it's showing up in therapy, it has showed up in our life 100% of the time. But for, you know, fairness, we'll say 99.9%. Therapy is usually just like a concentrated version of what happens in our life. So this difficulty with eye contact, I'd be curious how you do at work or school. Are you able to make eye contact with your friends or family? Are there certain people it's safe with and other people it's not? Why is that, Right. Again, understanding that why. So making eye contact in therapy is not 
a necessary thing per se. However, I think it's a big component of what's going on for you. And so I would want to address that or be curious about that and kind of dig into it to figure out where it's coming from so that we can heal so that we feel confident enough in ourselves and what's going on safe and secure enough to look someone in the eye and talk about things that are hard that will take time but that's what therapy is about and so that's really it you can definitely get the most out of therapy by not making eye contact but i really believe you should be working to figure out where this is coming from And if you can do it, what comes up? If you're like forcing yourself to do it, what comes up for you? You know, there's a lot there to dig into, okay? Now there's a comment on this says to follow up. How can I start to work towards eye contact with my therapist as we uncover and work towards or work through the childhood emotional neglect, emotional abuse, shame, inner child issues, and a lot of other stuff that I've never told anyone before. I've never been able to cry in front of people after all the childhood emotional neglect and emotional abuse that my parents caused. And I'm just getting to the point where I feel like I could cry in front of her, but making eye contact while talking about any of this stuff or while crying feels impossible. That's okay. I know it can be really healing to see how my therapist reacts to me being vulnerable and crying and see that she isn't like my parents and that she does care. But it also feels terrifying to look at her because I don't want her to see me when I'm broken like this. And it's easier to hide and not look at her. I feel like I kind of answered this question because you work towards the eye contact by figuring out where it's coming from. And you kind of know, it's like, we're afraid that being vulnerable like that leaves us, hence vulnerable, right? Vulnerable is the term. So being open leaves us more vulnerable to being hurt. And so it's, going to be difficult to process and push through that to slowly be able to trust her. So I wouldn't push you to make eye contact while you cry. I would encourage you to allow yourself to cry and acknowledge or at least give yourself an opportunity to feel that support and that love while you do fall apart and know that it's okay. You're not broken. You're having an emotional expression. You're, you're, letting yourself feel what you've gone through and having someone show up for you and be okay with that and be able to hold that space for you, right? Allowing for that to happen, not running away, not hurting you, not shutting you down. All of that's going to be healing. And we can, again, just slowly work towards that eye contact, but it doesn't have to happen all at once. Give yourself time. And it sounds like maybe the crying thing is also another level of vulnerability for you. And if we can do that, that's wonderful. That's a step in the right direction. We don't have to do it all at once. Cry, allow yourself to do what you want to do. And then maybe talk about it at your next session, how eye contact is difficult and to fall apart in front of her is very difficult and see what comes up for you. You know, we kind of know where it's coming from and it's just going to take some time. It's a healing relationship. So allow that healing to take place. There's another comment on this as as another follow-up. Is that the goal to be able to eventually maintain eye contact? I know for me, shame is the main reason I can't hold it. When we do small talk, I can look at my therapist, but the moment we start talking about anything serious, big or small, I cannot maintain eye contact and I have to look away. Does it become easier? Yes. It's not the a huge goal in therapy, but it's part of it, right? It's all about the goals in therapy depend on what you're wanting to work towards. It's not one size fits all. Not everyone's going to have to make eye contact, right? Especially my patients with trauma in their background, this childhood emotional neglect we just talked about and abuse, it's going to be more difficult. Am I going to push them to do it? No, but am I going to try to explore it with them and figure out where it's coming from? You betcha. And 
especially with the case of this person where they're saying, if we're talking about like lighthearted things, it's easy. But as soon as we move into more serious, I can't. So I might try to play around with maybe that space in the middle where it kind of feels lighthearted and then it's a little bit serious, a little lighthearted, a little serious. And we're almost like building that new muscle of allowing you to continue making eye contact as things shift out of lighthearted into serious and kind of working that little buffer zone if there is one. Um, But it's not necessarily the end goal and it does get easier with practice and as we kind of figure out where it's coming from, okay? There's another comment, last comment. It says, I agree. I have never been able to make eye contact last more than a second or two. And my therapist is always asking me how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking because I'm never able to make eye contact. Most of the time, I'm only able to make it last if she's telling me more about other issues or any information about counseling in and of itself as that's what I'm in school for. But as soon as it's about me, I can't do it. For my background, I have severe PTSD, childhood emotional neglect, childhood sexual abuse, anxiety, and depression, and I was always told to be seen and not heard. How can I get out of the internal thoughts about this, as I can't imagine looking into someone and telling them all of this without the guilt and shame? I don't want to see my therapist's face and expression as I'm telling them about my terrible childhood experience. Let's explore that. What is it that you're worried you're going to see on their face? Talk to them about this. What you're afraid of. If you're able, you don't have to make eye contact while you talk to them about this. Just let them know and acknowledge that this is happening. I know they're aware. Um, you know, it's something as therapists, we're always cued in to pick up any kind of physical, social cues, you know, body language, eye contact, uh, voice raising, lowering, mumbling. Well, you know, those are things we're, we're trained to pick up on because it tells a bigger story. So, Maybe addressing this with your therapist in a roundabout way will allow you to explore it more deeply. Meaning if we, instead of trying to say like, I don't know why I can't make eye contact. I feel such guilt and shame. I can't talk about anything with them like that. I have to look off while I talk. Instead of talking about it like that, what if we come around the side and we say, eye contact's always been something that's difficult for me. It, it just feels too ugh, in my space, too close, too, maybe we don't even have words, Right. Let's start there and talk that through with your therapist. The goal, again, does not have to be to make eye contact, but I'm more interested in the why. Why is it difficult? And for you, it sounds like it's that guilt and shame and the expressions we're afraid of seeing. And could we maybe work towards sharing that with our therapist? What is the expression that we would hate to get? Have we ever looked somebody in the eye in our childhood or upbringing at some phase and had them be angry at the fact that we were crying or upset or maybe not reactive at all, completely neglectful or or what, what happened? You know, let's talk about that. Let's figure that out because that's actually more important than the eye contact itself. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, Hey Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, my question is, what do you do if a client was self-injuring in session? I have really bad eczema on my hands. And if I clench my fists, all the wounds split open. Ouch. Yeah. I found myself doing this in session when we're talking about hard things. I don't know if my therapist has noticed this, but if she has, she has never brought it up. What will happen if I do bring it up? Okay. I've had patients do this. Um, when someone left a comment under this, where they talked about like clenching and scratching themselves, I've had patients who struggled with that when talking about hard things. And a lot of my patients don't even notice that they're doing it. Um, I always bring it up. I always notice, but again, you guys have to remember, I specialize in eating disorders and self-injury work. So I'm always looking for these things. And if your therapist doesn't specialize in that, she might not really be aware because clenching of your fists in and of itself doesn't seem like a self-injury move, right? 
my patients have like the, you know, clench their arms in some way with other hands or um, scratching of a finger with another finger, things like that. But I'm just acutely aware of any of that kind of movement. So it's just something that I pay attention to. What will happen if you bring it up is that she's going to just be curious about it. Have you done this before? Are there other ways that you've injured yourself? There's going to be more questions. I think it's really important that you do bring it up because self-injury in that kind of way is incredibly common. Often, we can feel like that expresses the pain for us or that we deserve punishment for even sharing this. Um, it gives us an opportunity to then later care for ourselves the way our parents didn't. There can be a lot of different reasons that we engage in self-injurious behavior. And it's really important to figure out where it's coming from for you and better manage it through either impulse logs or maybe you... Um, purchase it's called thinking putty and you can get it on amazon you can get silly putty too just at like walmart target on amazon as well but i really like thinking putty it comes in a little tin and they have like gold ones the ones that change colors it's just really fun and cool and you keep your hands busy that way or you can purposely bring you know like cream and maybe gloves so that your hands don't split if you if that's helpful for your eczema i don't have eczema so i'm not pretending to be a doctor and understand the best treatments for it but i'm just saying are there things that we can do to to prevent us from continuing to do that behavior and maybe we can impulse log that out um, if you don't know what an impulse log is, I have it in my book, Traumatized. It's also, you can go to selfinjury.com and and click on the link for impulse log. And it's it's not the best description, but it walks you through pretty slowly and easily about how to use one. And I think it's a great resource. Um, I know some people in our community are like, it's just too childlike for me, but at least it walks you through. So that's another way to, you know, another resource for you. But I'll honestly, to answer your question, if a client is doing it in session, I draw attention to it. I mention it. I say, I've noticed that you're tensing up and grabbing yourself. Are we, are we feeling, you know, pain? We think we need to express is this self injurious behavior. And then the questions will come. And it's not like I pepper them with questions like, bup, 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 bup. but I will bring it up, draw attention to it and be curious about it because that's really where the healing comes in, right? Is us learning and being able to figure out why we're doing something. Cause like I said, a lot of my patients will say, I didn't even realize I was doing that. And so I want them to to realize so that we can then figure out why and stop it from happening again. Okay. And so that's really what will happen. Nothing else is going to happen. <clears throat> the important part is just to be curious because maybe you don't even know why, right? And we want to figure it out together. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And this question says, Katie, about eating disorder recovery, when do I know that it's time to exercise again? Oh my God, I get this question all the time are there quote unquote signs that I can look out for, like having a regular period? Okay, all of my eating disorder folks out there are gonna hate this answer, but this is the truth. Your doctor, number one, has to clear you for it. I know, you have to see a doctor. I know that sucks. I know you don't like that. I know you'd like to say, but I've gained weight or I've managed to eat this way or that way, or I'm not using it to injure myself or to compensate anymore. And you're sure of it. That's fine and that's great see your doctor, get the all clear there, and also then your therapist and dietitian. We need our treatment team to agree with us that this is okay because it's a slippery slope. And when I worked in the inpatient eating disorder treatment centers for years, part of the process was to start out with very mellow, easy exercise, meaning that we would start with walks around the block, checking how we feel, noticing what comes up for us, because we don't want to do too much too fast. And it's not about the exercise itself. It's about what it means for us and our recovery. 
I don't want you doing it to quote unquote earn food or to make up for a binge. I want it to be a way to move your body to to love on your body. And it takes time. And so a lot of it's going to have to be very mellow, basic exercise for a while until we heal that relationship with ourselves. Exercise shouldn't be punishment. And that's really hard for us with eating disorder past to move into. And so when do you know it's time to exercise again? When you can do it with love and care in a very moderate form without feeling like you're doing it to earn or to make up for food. Okay. And yes, a period, a regular period is part of it, but that's part of like your body healing itself kind of, and isn't necessarily directly linked to exercise. Okay. That's it. So I guess the signs you can, the quote unquote signs you can look out for are that your relationship with food and your body is improving, that we're able to eat more intuitively, where our body is healing, whether that means gaining, losing weight, you know, binging less, eating regular meals and snacks. We're in that healthier state for an extended period of time. Now, does that mean that in early stages of recovery, we can't do any exercise? If your doctor says no, no. But if you are able, like I said, short walks, walking the dog around the block, walking for five, 10, 15 minutes, building up, things like that. No running, no high intensity workouts. We're just going to start moving. Maybe it's like some Hatha yoga, things that are just a little easier on our body so that we can actually be in tune with our bodies, feel how our body feels, be in it while we do that exercise versus what we tend to do when we have an eating disorder pass, which is disconnect from our bodies and force it into doing things. So that's where, you know, that's what we're looking for. And I know that answer sucks. And I know you're angry, but it's just the truth. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, I have an eating disorder, anorexia. The problem is that despite my lack of intake, I keep gaining weight. I'm 46 years old and I'm wondering if that's why. I have a registered dietitian and an eating disorder therapist. And even though I'm trying to work on recovery, this constant weight gain is really distressing for me. How do I be at least neutral with the idea of gaining weight and about food? I feel like I should give up on it all and let things be the way they're going to be. No matter what I do, it doesn't help the craziness in my head anyway. Something that we don't talk about enough is when it comes to eating disorders, our metabolism as a whole, yes, you're 46, so your metabolism is going to be different than when you were 26. I know that sucks, but that's that's just what happens in our bodies as we age. It changes. Hormones change. Metabolism rates change energy levels change. We change, right? We change change each and every day. So there's that component of it. Yes. However, when it comes to eating disorders and restriction, what I feel like people forget this, that when you restrict your body goes into survival mode, meaning it tries to hold on to any and everything that you give it because it doesn't trust you. You've been starving it. Our body's job is to survive. It goes into this like essentially stress response survival mode and it like white knuckles its way to try to keep us alive when we're trying to harm it, right? I'm not judging eating disorders or the behaviors. I'm just saying that's what happens biologically inside our system. Therefore, when we're healing, if we still are doing this restrict binge, restrict binge or restrict try to eat regularly, our body still thinks it's under threat and it's going to hold on to that weight. And when we're regaining and becoming more, uh, you know, weight stabilized or weight restored or whatever term you're more comfortable with, 
we usually start to gain it around our middle, which is super triggering for people. But it's because think of our middle, I'm talking like, you know, belly to shoulders. Our middles where all our important organs are. We can survive without an arm. We can't survive without a stomach, you know, like we it's, I mean, maybe you can, I guess, if you have like all this external stuff, but I'm just saying that our body does its best to keep this stuff okay. And so it, it holds weight around our middle until we've been weight restored for a while and it feels safe to redistribute. So then it will go out to our arms and our legs and things like that. So there's this uncomfortable period of weight gain and it's just part of the healing process. And does it fucking suck? Yes, it fucking sucks. And it's a really tricky time for a lot of my patients in recovery. But anyways, I don't want to get too off topic. The I would encourage you to talk to your dietitian and therapist about this, to know, at least if you are able to check the facts, know that if you continue to eat food regularly and don't do this yo-yoing in and out of eating disorder behaviors, this weight gain or really struggle with weight restoration and maybe even holding weight around the middle is going to go away more quickly and it will be more stabilized. You're not, I know the eating disorder tells you, oh, I'm just going to continue gaining weight forever and ever and ever and ever. And I'm going to, you know, look like this and we name call ourselves. I'm going to be this way or that way. We can shit talk. This is going to be terrible. I'm going to get so heavy, blah, 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 blah. That's not the truth. Is our body gaining weight? Probably. Why? Because it needs it, because we've been restricting it. And the thing that I think is the hardest for a lot of us, and even those of us not in who don't technically have diagnosable eating disorders, is body image struggles, right? Wishing that my body looked like your body, or you wish your body looked like somebody else's body, when our bodies are just different. My body's never going to look like your body. Your body's never going to look like that person's body. And that can be hard. And so the weight gain to you might seem excessive, but to your body, it might be like, this is what I'm supposed to be. This is the size and the way I'm supposed to look. You just never let me be that. You've always been fighting against me in this constant battle since we were teenagers or something, right? And so talk with your therapist, talk with your dietitian. Know that it does take time to kind of untangle our eating disorder voice from our, our voice, our healthy voice, I would argue. And it also takes time for our body to trust us and heal. And we have to, and this is the shitty sucky part about recovery, is that we have to give it that time and space to do the healing. And that like space is really hard and it can be really triggering. And that's why it's great that you have the support that you have. So lean into them, be honest about it, be angry about the weight gain, yell about it, talk to them about what's happening and what you're stressed about. It's okay to not like it and to be frustrated. But what I don't want you to do is continue taking it out on your body. I want you to talk about what's coming up and why it's so distressing. And I don't know if you figured this out yet, but I'm very curious about the purpose your eating disorder serves. What is it helping you cope with? Is it, you know, trauma from our past? Is it addiction in another way? Or is there something else going on? Do we have, you know, maybe we were bullied as a kid? What what does it help us cope with? Is it anxiety? depression. I don't know. I'm just very curious. And so like, allow yourself to be curious about that, figure out where it's coming from, because if we can heal that wound, the urge to restrict does go down. And that's almost like 
hitting it with the one-two punch, right? We're getting support for the food and the body image and all the shit that comes up with eating disorder recovery. Then we're also working on the reason that it exists. So we're trying to take away that urge as much as possible. And I know it's a lot. Um, Also know that there are intensive outpatient programs or IOPs, as well as PHPs, partial hospitalization programs. If you need more support, I know it sucks when we get older and we're we have jobs and careers and families and be like, I can't take time off. I'm telling you, if you need more support and you want to go inpatient for a few weeks, I highly encourage that you do it. It can not only speed up our recovery process, but get us that extra support so that we maybe don't feel so shitty for as long. Okay. Just throwing it out there. Okay. Final question, question number eight. It says, Katie, I'm trying to recover from an eating disorder, but it's really difficult because whenever I eat, I just feel sick and overly full, even though there's no way that I could be full because I'm not eating enough to warrant that. Will I ever stop feeling overly full and sick and exhausted after eating? It triggers me to purge, not to lose weight, but just because I feel so sick. I feel like I can't do school anymore because my eating disorder has me nutrient deficit. Oh, it has me, yeah, nutrient nutrient deficit, which makes me exhausted and depressed. But I feel like I can't eat either because then I'm just exhausted and sick. I have too much to do in a day to be feeling like this. I'm feeling hopeless and there doesn't seem to be a good solution. Okay. We need to get you into therapy ASAP. Um, Also, possibly a dietitian if you can afford one, if you have one in your area, I highly encourage you to do that. And if they offer them in your school, reach out to see a therapist there because it's usually free or very low cost. Um, And that makes it, you know, a little bit easier for you to sustain. Also, make sure you ask them what they're going to share with your parents if they share anything and make sure you're informed on that. It's important that we are, especially if we're under 18. If you're over 18, they can't tell your parents anything unless you approve of it and you give what's called informed consent. You have to sign a form. Just throwing that out there. Um, However, when it comes to this feeling that you're having, the reason that you're feeling this overly full is because of how triggering it is for you to eat and what I would call emotional fullness. Um, I think we can all agree that there are times when we feel so stressed out that we do one of two things. We can feel full immediately and not want to eat, or we can feel like a bottomless pit and we can just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and we never feel full. I don't know why our bodies do that. You can read and do a bunch of research on what's called the lizard brain. It's essentially this connection between like our stress response and our uh, survival mode, which would be our stress response, but you could call, you know, our limbic system lights up, things happen and our digestion and our stomach fullness. That's why a lot of people get, when they get stressed, they feel nauseous, they get diarrhea, we get heartburn. There's that direct connect from our stress response into our entire digestive system. Like I said, if you want to read about the lizard brain, it's very fascinating. You can dig into it. That's what's happening here. And for you, this emotional fullness is meaning that when you do sit down to eat, you're already so stressed out to the max, eating stresses you out even more. And you're like, I immediately feel sick and full. And you don't actually, you're not full and you're, you know, but your brain is telling you that you are because of that emotional fullness. And so what I would encourage you to do and something I have my patients do is before we eat, it's, it's really part of intuitive eating and this might be too much for you. You might need to be in therapy for a while or more intensive treatment before you get there, but check in with yourself before you eat on how emotionally full you feel. 10 would be like, I'm about to lose my fucking mind. Five is like, I'm in the middle. I'm okay. Zero or one is like, I feel amazing. Great. This is easy. I'm so light. Things are good. Life is good. Today's a great day. Best day ever. Right? So pay attention. Notice your hunger and fullness 
in your body. And then also notice your emotional hunger and fullness and check in on that. And if you're feeling emotionally full, I encourage you to journal, reach out to a therapist, talk to a friend about it. If we, if anxiety is part of it and we need to like dump some of that stress response, maybe we do a full body shake. Maybe we splash cold water in our faces. We're going to have to do some things to kind of bring that down because otherwise, if we are always at a 10, every time we sit down to eat, we're going to still feel nauseous and overly full. It's going to hit us every time. And unless we have emotional support around eating, like through a therapist or at treatment, or maybe even a really close friend who's supportive, it's going to be hard for us to push through. Um, and I would encourage you, if you're able to to stop that purging, since you're saying it's not to lose weight, it's because you feel kind of nauseous. I want you instead to try to breathe through it and try to do some of those things like the full body shakes, journaling, because what you're trying to get out actually isn't the food. You're trying to get out those, those emotions and that overwhelm. And I know it can be feel complicated and you're like, no, it's the food. It's not, you know, logically also, you're like, there's no way that I feel full because I haven't eaten enough to feel full. You know that, but your body emotionally is full. So let's try to take the edge off of that emotional fullness before we sit down to eat and see if that helps. It'll also be great therapeutically because we all need to take some edge off sometimes and express things that are coming up for us. It could even, if journaling and the things I mentioned are just too difficult. It could be trying to identify one emotion that's coming up. Are we feeling hurt, sad, angry, upset, isolated, misunderstood? I don't know. There's the whole feelings wheel. You can just go to feelingswheel.com. You can look at that and you know pick a couple of those words. At least try to help yourself acknowledge what's coming up versus feeling like it's happening to us, right? We want to take our power back. And part of that is just through that acknowledgement that this is emotional. This is an emotional response. It has nothing to do with the food even though it feels like it does, it has everything to do with what our body and our mind are going through. And the fact that we're trying to keep stuffing things down emotionally. So the idea of stuffing food down our throats feels like too much. So hang in there. It does get better. um, But we're going to have to take that edge off first in order to be able to eat and tap into hunger fullness cues in a real way. And like I said, therapy, a dietitian can be incredibly beneficial during this process. Okay. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this podcast. A lot of you ask, like, how can I help Katie? The best way you can help is by sharing and telling someone about this podcast so that we can grow as a community. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time.